Welcome to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Join me for conversations about how to advocate for our kids in a one-size-fits-all world. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, everyone. So glad to have you back. So today we're joined by Michael Weingarth. He founded the first neuropsychological tutoring company called Pillars of Learning. He helps students remediate lifelong struggles while empowering them to become aware of their own compensation patterns. He's currently working on a book about measurable intelligence and how the quest for measurable outcomes has steered us away from caring about the potential of what students can be. Michael, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. So every time I talk to you, I feel a little bit more intelligent. I feel like I have to up my game. We get to talk about these super nerdy things, but they're nerdy, but extremely relevant to our families, us as parents, our kids, and one of the most important fundamental things for our kids, which is their education. So let's just get right at it. I want to hear from you. What is the biggest misconception out there regarding cognitive development and ability? I mean, that's a huge question, but it sort of speaks to the heart of the problem, which is that everyone, when they talk about education or development or learning disabilities, wants like a hack or a silver mm-hmm. bullet or you know a fix, basically. And the, the underlying problem is that We've sort of designed a system which is built on this idea of assessment and this idea of measurable outcome. And then because of that, there's this, you know, achievement gap, but the achievement gap is built on the assessments themselves. And instead of looking at things like brain-based learning, which is a sort of new school of thought, which is very data and research driven, we're still purchasing proprietary curriculum through our special education department for kids with learning struggles. You know, that's like that next biggest gap is like, we're going to fill it with this thing. We'll buy this other program will do this. So the biggest misconception I would say is that you can actually locate one misconception that would solve all the problems. <laughs> it is an incredibly complex system which requires, I mean, it's like we need a hard reboot the same way that we did culturally around smoking. Like we need to do the same thing for measurable outcome and assessment. We need to look at it the same way that we had that shift around how much damage secondhand smoke does how much damage assessment does ultimately and the purpose that it serves. I think if you look at it long enough, anyone can see like it's not really actually doing what it's supposed to do. Wow. I couldn't agree with you more. And I love that analogy to the harmfulness of smoking and how we did as a society have to draw a line in the sand and do a lot of education around that. You know, I remember in school, they had a really big push when I was going through about the harmfulness of that. And we did make that big cultural shift, but it wasn't incremental. It had to be a major widespread recognition of something that's not working and not okay. And that we need to switch gears. And on that note, it's your belief that we can't measure talent through a test score. And you have gone on to say that you can't correlate education with creating value. So can you talk us through that a little bit more and what you mean by those statements? Yeah, I mean, it's complicated because you're looking at the intersection of the evolution of testing and how testing sort of came to be the standard approach for deciding that someone do something or someone was good at something. And you're also looking at education as um, a larger concept, like what does it mean to educate someone or to be educated? And then lastly, you're looking at like the industrial capitalist society frame in which most school classrooms were designed. So I'd say that the, the issue of 
like what assessment ultimately does, and it's sort of the way it gets twisted, is that tests can measure certain things, like neuropsychological evaluation, which is the main avenue for assessing learning difference, can be a super useful tool. It's especially useful for looking at things like traumatic brain injury, where you can see like, all of a sudden, this processing center isn't working, we should investigate in case this normal fall actually is causing some swelling in the brain, and we should send this kid to the ER right away. You can tell that with the test, and that's why a lot of school psychiatrists spent their time evaluating for TBI, which is great. I, they should be doing that. That's wonderful. But like looking at a test which is supposed to capture everything about a student and give you a number which tells you ultimately how well they can learn flies in the face of everything that we've come to understand about the brain in terms of neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to change, the concept of compensation patterns, countless studies on people who have had traumatic brain injury and then have found workarounds to let their brains function, not totally normally, but or in a way that fits normative patterns. And so assessment is really this sort of siloed look at a specific aspect of functioning. And if you think of it that way, it's sort of like if you were in a gym and you were trying to measure strength and someone said, how much can you bench? That is how strong you are. Like, you know, a marathon runner might be incredibly strong in some ways, is not going to necessarily have a great, you know, they're not going to be able to put up monster numbers. Whereas an Olympic weightlifter could put up monster numbers, but simultaneously wouldn't be able to run anywhere near as long or as fast as that distance runner. Even if you take two types of runners, a sprinter versus a marathoner, they're going to have very different responses to types of strength and the way that strength is built and the conditioning in which it happens. So what we're doing is we're saying, this is a one-size-fits-all approach to how we measure children. And then we just are <laughs> frustrated that it's not working for everyone. And it's, you know, it's sort of like, these are the moments when people want those hacks or those fixes or those gimmicks or just say, like, if I was running a school, I would do this. And maybe that would work, you know, whatever those ideas are. But most of it's rooted in this conception that there is one problem. And the problem is the system itself. It's the design of everything we do to measure children. Because unless you're in a Montessori or a project-based learning program, you're really looking at a number on a piece of paper that dictates the student's ability. Yes. And again, that's very different than looking to see if there's brain swelling, you know, to see if all of a sudden right. language no longer works or like certain specific parts of the brain that we know in a very detailed fashion, precisely what they do if they're impaired. That's a very different type of thing than saying, you know, you're a 70 and you're an 80. We have to right. rush you to the ER versus that fall didn't do anything is a very different source of measurement than, you know, and, and essentially what we're doing is we're creating tools that don't allow for difference. They don't allow for creativity. They don't allow for any sort of compensation. They just look at, did you do this the way that this assessment expected you to do it? And that's magnified and intensified as you grow older and take the SSAT or the ISEE or, you know, I forget what the Common Core standard year-long tests are. But as you look at those assessments that gauge, you know, mastery or knowledge of content, it gets worse and worse as you move up. And then the SAT and the ACT are like the pinnacle of sort of idiotic obsession with, these very specific aspects of processing, which people think denote intelligence, and they don't. You know, there's, there's no way of knowing that they do. So, sorry, it's kind of a long answer to all that, but, you know, it's this vicious cycle of thinking that tests measure something. And if you go back to dig at the history of tests, most tests came into school by accident because of an overzealous printer who had a bunch of spare tests left over from World War I. Hmm. And that's how standardized testing came into colleges. I didn't know that story. Interesting. We actually have proof, research that says that that model rewards the students who are hardwired to do well in memorization, do well with detail and specifics, and also 
organization and systems and process and a stable environment that is more conceptual than hands-on. And that's only 20% of kids. So by far, the majority of kids don't fit that, like you said, one-size-fits-all model, which is biased in a certain direction. And the most harmful thing, I think, of everything that you said is we're creating this perception of inequality. I've seen this happen with adults and kids alike, that when you get a 70 and somebody else gets a 90%, the child with a 70% thinks lesser of themselves, right? Or I'm less capable. I'm not smart. I'm struggling. And obviously that's harmful because you and I agree that they have remarkable potential, incredible creativity, wonderful amounts to contribute. But that number, which has its flaws, can completely change the way that they perceive themselves and their self-efficacy. But I also think there's danger in the 90. And you know, speaking as somebody who worked really, really hard to get good grades. So I totally played into this system, right? I'm, I'm a high achiever. So full disclosure, type AAA personality. But I've also done quite a bit of research and, and interacted with people of all ages about imposter syndrome. And with my son being in the gifted program, clearly being a smart cookie, that's dangerous too. When we keep giving these markers that say to a child, you're smart, you're smart, you're smart. Because though that's wonderful, when they face challenge or don't get the 90%, then I've seen that really rock their world. So the labels, the measures we use to your point are um, very impactful And I see very real consequential outcomes from these kinds of metrics that we're using with our kids who are still forming their identities and finding their place in this world on a daily basis. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's ultimately what you also see if you read enough, you know, neuropsychology books about evaluating children with learning issues is that the tests predict what type of student will not, even, even if you're looking at the kids who are not normative, the tests say the kids that are not normative. (laughs) <laughs> in an average way, right, which fits yeah. the middle of the bell curve of the test population, right. will be easily diagnosed. And everyone else, you have to go through and dig through their work, talk to their parents, get a full developmental history, all this other stuff. So even the tests, which are supposed to spit out dysfunction and identify it, do not a great job at doing that. And the best evaluators wind up running multiple tests anyway, because they understand that the brain itself, by the time you hit you know, third grade, fifth grade, whenever that sort of cliff happens for a student where a certain amount of rigor exposes a pretty mm-hmm. serious challenge for them in doing a certain set of tasks. By that point, the brain's developed a bunch of complex and subtle compensation patterns because this is the thing. And I guess maybe this might return back to your original question of what the biggest misconception. Brains are way more adaptable and plastic than people imagine in young people. And I think young mm-hmm. people are a lot more sensitive and a lot smarter and more intelligent than people give them credit for. And because of that, like their brains do these incredible things where, you know, compensation happens when one pathway is sort of not connecting as easily as others. And so other pathways around it become faster and more efficient. This is similar to like the, you know, hamstring analogy. If your hamstrings are not firing or recruited in certain tasks, then your glutes and your quads and your calves will take over to take off some of the slack off of them. Ultimately, you can retrain them, right? But you have to be aware of them to do that. And for most of these kids, there's no need to be aware because everything's working fine. And then they hit a point where all of a sudden reading suddenly gets that much harder, right? When it involves acquisition of tons of new vocabulary or math class suddenly moves into dealing with algebra or it's a heavy fraction unit because they have a minor visual spatial issue. The 
fact that the fractions are on different vertical levels suddenly feels impossible when regular arithmetic feels easy. So, you know, there's stuff like that where you can find these subtle issues which show up on an email, but that's not really a genuine learning disability in the sense of like being unable to learn. The label itself is a complete misnomer. Mm -hmm. Really what we need to move to is ways of looking at everything that you've talked about, you know, that concept of labels. We need to look at the labels themselves and we need to look at smartness and disability and ability and get back to viewing it as a spectrum that can be coached upwards infinitely, essentially, the same way that we do now for athletic training. You know, if you look at Instagram, it's sort of just like poisonously full of people boasting about their awesome gym gains, right? And like <laughs> their, their next supplement, which is making them get so small. But they're, you know, like everyone believes that you can get fit, that you can get stronger, get faster, get healthier. Like that's not a concept where we have an upward, you know, fixed limit on. But we have this very fixed mindset on intelligence. And that's really what you're talking about is this idea that smartness gets praised rather than other elements. And that's that's a little bit addressed by things like grit and mindset, which certainly mm -hmm. tried to steer the conversation back towards potential. But really, if we just started the conversation with like, Brains can change way more than they thought they could, and they're already changing a significant amount by the time the kid's six. You know, we have this view of developmental psychology where things sort of stop after age seven, approximately. The most growth happens between three and seven, and that may be true, but we also, we haven't taken functional MRIs of every child between zero and seven, so there's no real way of knowing all this. So a lot of this is like we're fleshing out all these gaps in the science through yeah. more imaging, through better research, but we're still stuck with school and this idea of numbers and labels and everything else. And it's really just, that's ultimately where you see all this friction, which is the reality of students being able to do a lot more and then getting frustrated and discouraged. And then I think we talked about this originally, but learning happens in an emotional context. Like everything that happens for a child is coded in an emotional envelope, which delivers the information to them. And emotion is the strongest learning cue you have as a baby because you pick up on your parents' fear, you pick up on their love, you pick up on other things because those are signals for your safety. If they're nervous, you're probably going to be nervous too, right? And that's mm -hmm. kids eventually copy and mimic your emotional state to assess threat, basically, and assess safety. If they get a bunch of signals emotionally from school that they're not good at something and that they shouldn't try because they're going to get it wrong, that's not a safe environment for learning or for trying. And then you've basically created, like, classically conditioned them in that Pavlovian sense to get that, like, I shouldn't try because I'm going to feel bad if I do. Right. It, I talk about that all the time in the work that I've done with families and students. It's a self-defense mechanism and I don't blame them. You know, your brain can only take so much trauma and so much stress and overload. And if you're going into that circumstance, you know, your brain, I'm sure you, you have way more technical terms for this, but essentially it says, I'm not going to take this. I'm just going to shut down. And that's where I see students totally disengage. And those students who originally love school, love to learn, hit those challenges, hit those labels. And it's kind of like damned if I do, damned if I don't. So I, yeah. I'm just going to take the easy way here. And I'm not gonna because, you know, if I put in all this effort, and that's still the result that I get, or the punishment that I get, if you will, for it, why go through the effort, right? I see that happening a lot at the three to five grade level. And then also the seventh and eighth grade level, I see that being an important threshold there as well. I get the great pleasure of talking to those kids about what is so great about them, what is so needed from them, how important their contributions are. And you can see it's like this light bulb goes off in them, their eyes light up and 
you can tell that was missing, you know, that wasn't part of how they saw themselves. And again, I think it's because of that system making them think and feel otherwise. But I want to touch on behavioral issues because you say behavioral issues are often construed as cognitive disorders. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, this this sort of speaks to a lot of issues of racial and gender disparity with diagnoses mm-hmm. because bias in those diagnoses is really bad right now. But basically, you know, ADHD, you can categorize as a specific learning disorder, right? But conduct disorder or oppositional defiant would be categorized more as behavior. Mm-hmm. You can also have, you know, PTSD, which can manifest in things like panic disorder, or a lot of other elements which might mimic conduct disorder or even borderline personality disorder. And that's just a kid literally not having unprocessed trauma that's still scaring them to a point where they can't think. So you look at all the the confluence of those factors, and the school is not a place where we're looking at the intersection of the student's emotional well-being and their ability to perform well. In most cases, you know, we're not like making sure each kid feels good about themselves in their home and checking in. You know, certain teachers in certain places that really drastically care will make that a priority. You see that with a lot of awesome charter schools, you know, in certain settings are doing a lot of that important work. A lot of places don't. They don't consider that to be essential to learning. Sadly, that's the case in a lot of high schools where there's an expectation of like, that's your stuff. You know, like if you're not okay, come talk to me, but otherwise we're just going to go about this. So with the behavior and the cognitive stuff, right, it's like your emotional state is tied to your cognitive performance. There's tons of data that shows this. And Mary Imordino Yang is an effective neuroscientist who looked at this, looked at even the ability to process emotion or read emotional cues and how that impacts learning. And the two are just so intrinsically tied to one another. You look at anxiety studies, anxiety will decrease blood flow to the prefrontal cortex. So no matter who you are, if you're under any kind of anxiety, like you're not going to have that same processing power. So, I mean, there's all these intersections of the ways in which behavior and cognition, emotional state are tied. Yet because we, we have this very pathologized way of diagnosing children, we don't train teachers well enough to, to know these things. We don't educate them enough about this. You just see this conflation of certain ideas. Like that kid isn't paying attention. They're having a really hard time focusing. And it seems like they can't sit still. They must have ADHD. That's the narrative for the referral. The parent doesn't know enough to really tease it out or to say, like, maybe it's not. Or maybe it's this subtype of ADHD, but not the other one. And so there's that issue where, you know, a student who is maybe dealing with emotional problems can't necessarily get the help they need because it's being looked at as other things. For the behavioral stuff, that's sort of more insidious because you just see minority, you know, like non-white students and essentially non-white girls being diagnosed at a much higher rate of oppositional defiant or conduct disorder, even though they may actually have ADHD or a processing disorder or emotional defense mechanisms around not feeling safe in the classroom. And I don't know if you've seen any of those videos that have been posted on various social media of like school police officers, quote unquote, like throwing students to the ground or, you know, just like tackling students for non-compliance, regardless of what instigated it. If I saw that in my school, you can bet that my first thought is that this is not necessarily a safe place. And if that guy's around, I don't want to be near him. Even if he was doing his job perfectly, again, which is sort of highly in question if you really need to tackle an eight-year-old. So there's just these moments where you look at this and you're like, what's really going on in our schools? And like, why aren't we just actually looking at this entire system with ways in which we're not aware of the student's behavioral, cognitive, and emotional health. And why aren't we trying to actually rope in all three in what we're doing rather than just assume that if one doesn't follow, then like that's that separate silo and then the other ones would be fine if we just plunk enough drugs or enough therapy in the right place, which, you know, may help some children. But again, like 
we've looked at all of this in these incredibly pathologizing terms, right? Which is like, these are the ways we treat these issues and that's it. There's no gray area. There's no overlap. There's no intersectionality. And that sort of just roots back to that idea of like, no teacher is really that deeply aware of the process for these diagnoses or the referral process, the way that influences the ultimate diagnosis. Like they're aware of these issues look like this in past students, but that information is based on past diagnoses, which were informed by the referral process. So it's, it's, it's just a super complicated system that's full of everything and just can't quite get out of that loop. Yeah, it's self-perpetuating. And the other word yeah. that keeps coming to mind as you're talking is multisystemic. Now, this is multidimensional, multisystemic, and to treat it one-dimensionally, pathologically, as you say, is not helpful. I see fallout from that. I know you see the fallout from that. So... What do we as parents do? I mean, this sounds like scary stuff. And as you just referenced, there may be somebody listening who just had their child referred for further ADD, ADHD diagnostics. Maybe that parent doesn't even know what they don't know. They don't know what questions to ask. And this conversation feels overwhelming. How do we be our kid's best advocate with all of these things going on and not get overwhelmed ourselves? Yeah, I mean, honestly, for a parent going through an evaluation process, the best thing you can do is arm yourself with information about the ways in which the tests don't necessarily reveal exactly what's going on and arm yourself as much as possible about what an ADHD diagnosis means, the different subtypes of it, the different presentations of it. Talking to your kid as much as possible and assuming that they're going to be accurately reporting everything is also huge. I think we get into this place where we either trust everything a child says as if it's absolutely watertight or we trust the institution. In reality, both are probably true at the same time. It's just that they have very different frames of reference. But for a parent going through that process, knowing the interplay between executive function and attention span and processing is huge, which is sadly not terribly well known or well documented. Most people think of executive function as organizational components or regulation components, like the ability to regulate your emotions. I don't have to tell you that the ability to regulate your emotions is not solely dictated by <laughs> a cognitive element in your brain. It's a lot of external factors contribute to it. Executive function in reality is like the neural pathways that we use that eventually become patterns of thought or patterns of moving and organizing stimuli. So they are organizational in that way. Like the ability to keep your bag organized is a habit based on a series of perceptions that you have about your bag and where things go. But in order to do that, you need to practice it. It needs to be modeled for you most of the time. And the things we pick up the most easily as humans in terms of executive functioning is the intrapersonal, our ability to regulate ourselves, and the interpersonal, our ability to negotiate mm -hmm. reaction interactions with other people. For some reason, like humans have a really hard time picking up with executive functions, the organization of systems that are not about social settings, unless you're on the autism spectrum. And then in that case, like nonverbal learning issues is exclusively deal with the trouble with regulating intra and interpersonal. But the symbol system component of executive function is hardest for most humans to pick up, which isn't surprising. It's the most abstract. So I think knowing that like you can have ADHD and it's actually just executive dysfunction along with like <laughs> quote unquote high motor. You know, if you're a kid who like doesn't sleep a lot and likes to move three to four hours a day, you know, if you were in an agrarian society, that kid would be pretty happy waking up early to go help their parents with the farm and moving around all day. There's no baseline that says being able to sit in a chair for seven hours makes you efficient or productive or smart. There's also non-medicative-based treatments you can use for ADHD, for regulation of emotions, you know, that either are through nutrition routes or things like neurofeedback, which are non-invasive. But again, like most parents aren't going to have the research at their fingertips. They're just going to say, what do I do to fix this? 
How can we get them back on track? I don't want an IEP that's going to lower the bar. And I think that's the greatest fear is that you have to accept what they give you. And you don't. I mean, it's hard to fight it. But knowing as much as you can about the interplay between executive functioning and everything else, in my opinion, for a younger kid, a kid under seventh grade is huge. Once you get above fifth or sixth grade, I would say you want to start peppering in more knowledge about processing and also actual just perception, like physiological issues that may cause perception problems. So I think like knowing those two things makes you significantly more educated than the standard parent when it comes to those things. But it's pretty intimidating looking down like I got this referral and I have to go get my kid evaluated. What do I do? But it's important to know like those tests aren't necessarily going to pinpoint like an IQ test doesn't actually illustrate you know, your brain. It illustrates a bunch of siloed functioning. We had a recent guest talk about being different does not mean you're deficient. And that really feels relevant to this conversation too, that there are different routes, there are different operating methods. And even going back to your example about organizing a bag, organization means different things to different people. For one person, that might mean Everything has a place, everything in its place. You know, there's separate bags, there's certain things allocated to different pockets or whatnot. For other people, it might just be, can I dig down and find what I need in the time that I need it? And it might be everything, you know, stuck down there altogether. So what does it matter, right? Those are just two different approaches to organization. But if you're getting to the same result, which is getting the pen when you need to sign your name on a piece of paper, who cares, right? But but I actually think a lot of people care because I think they just have such strict definitions of what certain things are. And to your point, they're informed by the values of the society. So, you know, it just happens to be that our society right now values more of desk work, or like you said, the educational model was built on this factory worker preparation mentality. So there's a lot of values that are informing what we deem as ideal or important or as correct. But in reality, human beings aren't built that way. So Michael, if folks listening are intrigued by everything you're saying, they want to take your advice and learn more so that they can be empowered to advocate for their kids, particularly in these tough and potentially intimidating conversations. How can they connect with you and learn more about your work and what you do? I'd say just shoot me an email. The problem with a lot of this stuff is, like I said, you're dealing with so many complex intersections, so mm-hmm. many different, even lenses are just looking at the brain, that it's way easier to do it on a case-by-case basis than say like, you know, here is the definitive way you should think about your child. Right. Well, then we'd be committing the same error, right? Yeah, Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. So I think the important thing is until I can figure out a better way to <laughs> look at everything all at once, you know, hopefully the book at least gets the context for this stuff. And then maybe people could connect their dots on their own for their own kid. But it's important to treat every child as they are like this unique, unlimited source of potential. And that, you know, like that, that's not to say that like every kid is going to achieve in metrics that school decides are important. You know, like I, I don't want to say that, like, you know, talking to me instantly makes your kid good at school. That's not my work. That's not my goal. Understanding why certain things are difficult and being able to mediate that is what I'm really about. And then I think if parents are confused or they have questions, again, it's case by case. But also, this much for any parent that is listening that has a kid that's been recently diagnosed or is about to be diagnosed is that in the 11 years I've been doing this, there's a surprising amount of resiliency in the population in terms of the overall population in finding more research into this stuff. Most of the good research on twice exceptional children who are both gifted and learning disabled has been published in the last five years. Executive function as a science or as a field of brain study is really functionally only about 25 years old. 
I know that seems like a long time, but in psychology research, that's actually pretty fresh and new. And brain-based learning is the other thing that I think everyone should look at, regardless of whether or not your kid has uh, a diagnosis. It's just uh, a great field of research and advocacy for building things around science. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing with us how to maximize our child's full potential, not just their test scores. We really appreciate you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also invite you to visit us at mothersofmisfits.com.